The finish line. I remember during the one marathon that I ran past the halfway point in the race, the finish line was the only thing I could think of. (laughs) There were times when I couldn't believe that this misery that I had willingly subjected myself to would end. (laughs) And yet after 26 miles there, it arose like a mirage in the vast desert that the balloons, the banners... Never had I been so relieved to simply lay down on the pavement and stop moving. (laughs) Literally, that's what I did. So if you take anything away from this morning, from this message series as a whole, please hear this. Marathons, they're they're bad ideas. Okay? (laughs) Don't listen to Pastor John. Don't let him lead you astray. I'll meet with you. I'll talk with you through it. They're bad, they're bad ideas. You've been warned. Uh, I've come to realize I can be a bit obsessive about finish lines of all kinds in, in my own life. Something about having this big, lofty goal that requires intentionality and discipline to achieve. It, it just works for me. It works for the way that I was designed, whether it be a race or a degree or some sort of professional goal. But I've noticed it's a a bit of a double-edged sword, if I'm being honest. Because yes, it does help me to get things done. It helps me to accomplish. But it can also cause me to lose focus on what's truly important. Let me give you a, a quick example. So at the beginning of 2021, I was feeling fairly ambitious. I get in these moods sometimes. And I decided I wanted to exercise more, to, to move more, hopefully get a little healthier in the process. So I set a goal of wanting to start running again. I had done my marathon in college, kind of hung up my shoes since then. So I wanted to start running again. But I didn't just want to start running again. I set the goal of running 1,000 miles in one year, in 2021. Casual, right? Um, again, why do I, I do these things to myself? Anyways, I, I figured out how much I'd have to run per week. I made my spreadsheet. I'm a big spreadsheet guy. Uh, made my routes, and I started running. And, and slowly, day after day, month after month, the miles, they slowly started to stack up. I hit 100, I hit 200, I hit 500, we were getting somewhere. I ran in the dead of winter, it was probably not smart to do that. I ran in the hottest days of summer when it was snowing, when it was raining. There was nothing that was going to get in the way of me accomplishing this goal. And before I knew it, December 31st, 2021 came around and I I laced up my shoes for my last run. I did it. 1,000 miles in a year, right? Go me. But no, no, no. (laughs) Here's the kicker. That was not the point of the story. Here's the kicker. (laughs) Since December 31st, 2021, (laughs) ask me how many times I've gone on a run. (laughs) Uh, Maybe? I don't know. I can literally probably count it on one hand because by the end of the year, I despise running. I was completely burned out on it and I still am to this day. So let me ask you the question. Did I really accomplish my goal? You know, sure, I I ran the thousand miles, but that original desire, that, that deeper desire to move more, to get healthier, I don't know. See, I technically succeeded in doing the work, but I failed in cultivating a lasting love of running along the way. 
So over the last month or so, we've been talking about running our race, spiritually speaking. And, and you may remember a few weeks back when Pastor John, he opened us up with, with 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul, he encourages the Corinthians to run intentionally, right? You, even using that intense language of striking a blow to our bodies, making it our slave, throwing off everything that hinders so that we can finish Well, and this is great stuff. I mean, this is right down my alley. Missional living, a plan for success, discipline in our walk with Jesus. I think we desperately need these reminders in our world of constant distraction and hurry and busyness. But I think we also need to be careful. Because if you're anything like me, those helpful reminders, those helpful structures can so easily get twisted into something else they can become simply another way in which we try to earn our salvation another way in which we try to earn the presence of God with us another form of the legalism that we're all so prone to falling into so we can spend our whole life gritting our teeth and and technically succeeding in arriving at our finish line. We can do the church thing. We can be in a life group. We can try to treat people well. We can give our money away. But if I fail to cultivate a a lasting love of Jesus along the way, what's the point, right? Just like my running experiments a couple of years ago, I would say that we've lost sight of the true desire, the deepest desire that I believe is within each one of us to live a life of intimacy with our creator, God, to experience Emmanuel, God with us. And if we're not careful, our spiritual lives will often end up like my running shoes, collecting dust in the back of a closet. And Paul himself, he he acknowledges this very reality in that same letter. Later on in chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, he writes these words, If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship so that I may boast. Right? This sounds like what he's been talking about in chapter 9. This discipline, this intentionality, but hold on, he's not finished. He says, If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship so that I may boast, but do not have love love of God, love of neighbor, an awareness of God's presence with us, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. I've missed the points. Walter Burghardt, he's a renowned Jesuit priest and and theologian, he put it like this. He said, unless there is a personal relationship between you and God, unless you can look upon things and persons and God with a long loving look, Your activity is likely to end in frustration and failure and you a castaway. So my question for us this morning then is how do we avoid this? How do we run our race with what I think you could call a a purity of heart, right? Not focused on simply white knuckling our way through this life, trying to be a good person and perform our religious duties, and finishing the race, but, but cultivating a deepening awareness and love of Jesus along the way. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into it. Father God, we recognize your presence in this place. Help us to never take that for granted, Lord. Open our ears today to hear from your word. Encourage us in those hard places, correct us where we need it. 
thank you for this time. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll be looking at a story from Exodus to help us walk through this question. We actually covered a part of this story back in our our True Story summer series, if you were here for that. So a little review for those of you who were here. But just some some quick backstory here to start. So the book of Exodus, it begins with the Israelites in slavery in Egypt. And where we're going to pick up this story today is about halfway through. So the Israelites, they have left Egypt. They've been delivered from slavery by God. He, he brought the plagues. He, he split the Red Sea. He provided manna for them to eat in the wilderness. He has saved them. He has provided for them. And more than that, he has been personally present with them. Exodus thirteen twenty one tells us about that. It says, by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them. And then by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or by night. It's pretty cool, right? But we're going to see that this provision, this this guidance and this presence, it unfortunately was not enough for the Israelites because when they arrive at Mount Sinai and Moses, he goes up the mountain to receive God's law. For the Israelites at this moment, everything kind of falls apart. Let's pick this up in Exodus 32, verse 1. If you're following along, it'll be on the screens as well. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. He might be dead, he might have abandoned us, who knows? So Aaron answered them, Okay, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. These are your gods. You could say a lot of things about this story, but I believe that it is first and foremost a failure on the part of the Israelites to recognize the presence of God with them. Because Moses, he's gone, right? This, this visual symbol of God's favor and God's protection, and they assume that God is gone as well. They're convinced that they're running their race alone. And out of probably a combination of desperation and restlessness, they make this foolish mistake. They tell Aaron, give us something that we can see. Give us something we can see. When we lose sight of God's presence. As we see with the Israelites, the natural result will always be idolatry because we're, we're forced then to turn to something else besides him. We're, we're always going to worship something. That's just our human nature. It's just a question of what. And when it's not God, we turn to created things rather than the creator. We turn to the gifts rather than the one who provides those gifts. I find it ironic that the, the golden calf, it's made of the very gold given to the Israelites from the Egyptians as they march out of slavery. We're told that in Exodus 12. So this golden calf incident, it serves as this striking inversion, this, this reversal of the Exodus, because once again, the Israelites find themselves bowing down to Egypt, bowing down to Egyptian gold. 
Except this time, this, this subjugation is of their own creation and their own volition. They, they choose this for themselves. When we lose sight of God's presence, we willingly return to the very place that God has rescued us from. Let's pause here for a minute because as much as I, I don't enjoy, I don't like to identify with the ancient Israelites, unfortunately, I find that their story often describes mine because I have a hard time recognizing the presence of God with me in my everyday life. I have a difficult time trusting in his love, trusting that he's running my race with me. The times when I get caught up in my own pride thinking that I can do life all on my own or when I find myself living distracted and hurried and anxious. It's almost as if our natural human inclinations are fighting against fostering this divine awareness. My oldest son, Benny, he's, he's going to be three next week. He's in this stage right now where he loves to wear his sunglasses. Loves to wear his sunglasses. I think we got a picture. That's Benny. And he'll wear them at home. He'll wear them in the car. And when he's not wearing them, sometimes he'll, he'll take them and they'll, he'll put them on top of his head. You know, like, like people do. I think he learned it from one of his grandpas. Um, yeah, it's, it's so cute. But sometimes when he does this, he'll come up to me just with the most serious look on his face and he'll, he'll ask me, Dad, where did Benny's sunglasses go? Where, where did Benny's sunglasses go? And I'll, he's, I mean, he's genuinely concerned. He thinks he's lost them. And, and yes, he does say everything in the third person still. Um, first potty training and then we'll, we'll work on that. But when he does this, I'll, I'll look at him and I'll smile. And I'm like, dude, remember? Around the top of your head. He's like, yes, thanks, Dad. And you can laugh, but I know for some of you in this room that that still happens to you. So for me, it's my keys. I, I don't know. Benny had forgotten what had been with him the whole time, that the thing that he never lost in the first place. I'm forced to reflect on the question then, how often do I forget what has been with me the whole time? God's presence, his love for me, that he goes with me. And how often am I then, like the Israelites, caught in the slavery of idolatry because of it to my ego or to my possessions or to my anxiety? These are some of the questions that I ask myself. Let's turn back to Exodus. So God, he sees what's happening in the camp while he's meeting with Moses on the mountain. He gives Moses a little update here. We're in 32 verse 9. He says, I've seen these people, God said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. They're stubborn. So now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great Nation, God says, hey, Moses, how about I just start this little human redemption project over with you? Quite the question, all right? And feel free to disagree with me here. There's plenty of different interpretations of this passage in particular. But I, I personally have come to believe, um, predominantly drawing from the scholarship of Dr. Carmen Imes, that in this moment, God, he is testing Moses, to see how he'll respond. He's he's testing Moses because we have to keep a couple of things in mind here. Number one, I don't think that God is surprised 
that the Israelites have failed. Right? He's, he's not up on the mountain saying, shoot Moses, I didn't see that one coming. God, he knows humanity, he knows our sinful tendencies, and remember, he's already started this project over once before. You think back to Noah after the flood and that restart. And if you know the story, you know that Noah, he gets off the boat into this beautiful new creation, fresh start. He builds an altar to God, okay? Good start, Moses. And then what does he do? He gets drunk and he does something sketchy in his tent that we're not given many details about, but it's obviously not good. Uh, That being said, another restart, it's not the answer. Human nature, it's, it's predictable, I don't think God is surprised here. The other thing that we have to remember is the reason that Moses is on the mountain in the first place. He's receiving God's law, that that famous Ten Commandments scene, right? God's instructions on how the Israelites can live as his covenant people. If you've read Exodus, you know that included within this law is something a little bit strange. You might have skipped over it. I know I have in the past because it's a little bit confusing, a little bit dry reading if we're being honest but essentially it's it's building plans included within this law it's detailed instructions on how to construct this little thing the israelites call the tabernacle the tabernacle and the tabernacle for those who don't know served two primary purposes for the israelites number one this was the place where god's presence would dwell with them. This was the place where heaven and earth would meet. The tabernacle and the resulting Jewish temple in the Jewish mind was the place where the symbolic recreation of the Garden of Eden where man and God walked and talked together. And the second purpose is that in order for this to be a place where God's presence could dwell, this also had to be an environment for atonement, a place for forgiveness, a time to be restored back into the covenant so that it was safe to come into the perfect holy presence of God. So with those two things in mind, we can see that even before the golden calf incident happens, God, he has already come up with a way that his presence can still dwell among his creation even when they break the covenant and sin. Perfection was never in expectation. God's first priority has always been finding ways that he can live with his creation despite their brokenness, ways that he can be with us in restored relationship. Forgiveness paves the pathway for God's presence. Phil Kennison, a professor at Milligan University, puts it like this, repeatedly the Christian tradition has wisely insisted that there is only one gift that God desires to give us the gift of God's own presence, the gift of being drawn deeply into the very life of the triune God. So when God dangles this question out to Moses, why don't I just start over with you? I do think it's a test. I think it's God asking Moses, are you going to be present to these broken people as I plan to be present to them? Are you going to fight for them even when they don't deserve it? Are you going to show them grace? Will you intercede for them? And Moses, I think in what is one of the most beautiful moments of his entire life, says yes. He says yes. And appealing to God's character 
and God's promises, he intercedes for his people. He asks that they'd be given another chance, that they'd be reconciled to their God. He even offers his own life as payment for their sins. God doesn't take him up on that, but we see a little Messiah foreshadowing there, don't we? And although there are some serious consequences for this idolatry, God, he relents from what he had previously said. So a little recap here. We've been through a lot already. We've seen the idolatry that results from losing sight of God's presence. And we've discovered that even when we deserve death, even when we deserve separation from God, he makes a way for his presence to continue to dwell with us. Forgiveness is a pathway for presence. But there's one more step that the story invites us to take One more deeper layer, if you will, because just when we think Moses' testing is over, God offers one final dilemma. I'm taken back to my college exam days when you think you're done with your tests and then you flip the paper over and there's more on there. It's like, dang it, right? Got a feel for Moses in this one. Listen to this. Exodus, we're on to chapter 33, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I'll give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, lots of ites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. Go to the promised land. This would have been music to the Israelites' ears, right? This is the whole place that they're going after they left slavery. But, pay attention, but I will not go with you because you are stiff-necked people, you're stubborn, and I might destroy you on the way. Using that same language from that first test that we just saw. God says to Moses, okay, I hear you. I'll forgive the Israelites. I'm not going to destroy you. In fact, I'll give you everything that your people desire. I'll give you the land I'll give you the safety. I'll give you the prosperity. I'll give you a guardian angel for crying out loud. God says, I will give you everything except for myself. And I think this final test, when we dig into it a little bit, most clearly reveals the heart of God for his people because God here is essentially asking, Moses, do you want the gifts or do you want the giver? Do you want the gifts or do you want the giver? Am I simply a skid-out-of-slavery-free card for you? Am I just a a ticket to the promised land? Because if I am, that's fine. You can can have the perks, but I'm not going to go with you. Or Moses, am I more than that to you? Notice this, this vulnerable place that God is putting himself into. And Moses and the Israelites in a move that is frankly, uncharacteristically wise for them, respond in what I believe is exactly the way that God had hoped that they would. They refuse to move on. They refuse to run their race without God's presence because they know that no matter how good that promised land may be, no matter how sweet that honey, no matter how fertile that farmland, it'll simply become another idol another golden calf if their God is not with them. Verse 15, we'll finish up here. 
Then Moses said to him, said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, okay, I'll do the very thing you have asked. I'll go with you because I'm pleased with you, with your people, and I know you by name. Friends, I I believe the question for us today, thousands of years later, it's essentially the same because God comes to us. He, he comes to me vulnerably asking, Maddie, am I simply a get out of hell free card for you? Am I just a, a ticket to heaven? Am I someone, something to be used for your own ends? Or am I more than that? Am I more than that, Maddie? Do you want, to go, do you want me to go with you as you run your race. I think back to Peter on the beach after he had denied Jesus three times. And Jesus comes to him saying, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The question isn't if we are going to get to the finish line. The question is how we are going to get there. Are we going to forget the point of it all? Like, like me and my running. Or will we follow in the example of Moses, wisely recognizing the most important thing about this race is keeping the true goal, God himself, at the front and center. And what this story is really inviting us into, friends, it's a a deeper understanding of what it means and what it looks like to practice the presence of God. You may have heard that phrase before, Adele Calhoun, in her wonderful book, um, Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, she defines practicing the presence as developing a continual openness and awareness of Christ's presence living in me. Say that one more time. Developing a continual openness and awareness of Christ's presence living in me because we're no longer under this old covenant. We don't need a tabernacle or a temple to experience the presence of God. You realize that our our hearts, our spirits, our bodies are now that place. This new holy of holies where God's presence dwells. That because of the perfect ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, this is the place now where atonement happens so that God's presence can dwell. He's within us. He's with us. So as we close, let me just leave you with a question. Maybe you can reflect on this as you go about your week. What part of your life do you need to discover or maybe rediscover the presence of God with you? Because we all have that place, right? That relationship, that conflict, that addiction. What would it look like for you to open yourself up to God in that place that maybe you're most afraid of doing so, that, that vulnerable place? He's already forgiven you if that's what you're worried about. He already loves you if that's what's keeping you back. There's nothing keeping him from you. He's waiting for you. God, he is not the finish line of our race. He's not the reward of a race run well. God is the one who has been running the race with us the whole entire time.
He says to Moses, he says to you, he says to me, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father God, I'm just, I'm so thankful for your presence. You didn't have to be a God that was intimately involved with his creation. You didn't have to be a God that wanted to live in relationship with us, but you chose to be that way. You chose to be intimately invested in our lives, wanting to partner with us as we bring about your new creation. I'm just so thankful. So as we reflect on that question this week, those places where we maybe have blocked you out or ways that we're resisting you, help us, give us the courage and the boldness and the trust to open ourselves up to you in a new way. Knowing that everything that you call us to is for our good, God. It's for our flourishing. It's for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.